So this yeah. is the That's one there. All right. Make sure I get this going correctly. Okay. Let's take a minute and pray. And we will get going. God, we are so grateful just for the opportunity to be able to come together and hear your word. Um, that is just such a precious gift to us. I pray that you would um, pierce our hearts tonight and that you would just help us to be open to what it is that you want to say to us. And we just invite your spirit, God. Um, I pray that, um, that you would give us eyes to see who you really are and to respond to that truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are going to be, surprise, surprise, in Mark. Um, and where's Madison? Madison, where are you? Madison's going to be our lovely reader. It was kind of hard to get a reader tonight, I have to tell you guys. Um, but she loves Jesus. She has volunteered. So um, I want to kind of talk a little bit about where, where we are at this point. Tonight we're going to be going through Mark 10, 46 through the first part of 11. And does anybody remember, tell me kind of where we are at this point in Jesus' ministry. Alex? Okay. So, it's all the Facebook. So he's a cheater. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about. We've gone kind of through the first half of Mark. We've seen Jesus in his first, um, his three years of ministry. Right. That's what so much of this has been. And then just shortly, um, really the the first about the middle of chapter ten, we see Jesus setting his face on the cross and beginning this journey to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, and, and he knows that he's going to die. And he's even kind of declaring that. And so we see initially in Mark, all these things are going on. You know, what's Mark's favorite word to use? Suddenly. Immediately, suddenly. So, I mean, we see action, action, action. It's just packed. All this is going on. Um, and then now we start to see um, that Jesus is, like I said, set his face on the cross and this kind of this pilgrimage has begun, so to speak. And so um, we see that he starts heading that way. And first he encounters the rich young ruler. And we talked about that. And we, and we talked about um, him saying that it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. But nothing is impossible with God. Um, and then we also see James and John having their, their mother asking, right, if they could sit at his right and his left hand. And we see this rebuke to them about um, just their mindset. And Drew talked to us last week, was that ladder illustration cool or what? I am never going to forget that. About how to be the greatest, right? How Jesus says we can do that. And it's through um, being a servant. And, and he models that so well for us. But we see that. And we see him plainly telling the disciples um, that he's going to go and he's going to die. And they still don't get it. You know, he's told them that before in Mark. And if you guys remember, they, they ask each other, like, what do you think he means by that? We'll die and we'll raise again. What do you think he's saying there? What do you think that is? Which, you know, I mean, Jesus speaks a lot in parables. So it's not too crazy to think. But up to this point, they're, they're totally missing it. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where we, where we find ourselves now is we are on the road to Jerusalem um, and, and this is a pilgrimage that they're taking. Um, pretty much every good Jew is going to go and celebrate Passover. And we'll talk, we'll talk about that. But Madison, we're going to go ahead and jump in. Um, I'm going to have you go ahead, and, go ahead and read 46 through the end of chapter 10. Go ahead and read that. Okay, so we see this again. They're on their way. Where are they going? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And we see this, this blind man, um, Bartimaeus, on the side of the road. And, and we watch this. This is actually the last 
um, healing miracle that takes place in Mark's gospel. Um, and and it's, it's just a pretty cool thing. And we're going to kind of dig a little deeper into this. So um, I'll, I'm going to read and we'll talk about kind of each section. So verse 46 says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That title right there, son of David, that is the only time that Mark actually uses this phrase. Um, and it's a title that appears to have just been becoming popular for um, the Messiah. So this is kind of, you know, pulp culture at the time. But this is something that is starting to become popular. So he is actually saying the coming Messiah. That's what he's saying when he uses this, this title. Um, and he, he actually cries it twice in this, in this passage. And, you know, whenever Mark does stuff like this, whenever any of the writers do stuff like this, we have to, you know, it can be easy to just be reading and going along, but we want to really stop and take notice of the fact that he, he's doing this two times. That means something. Um, and it's, it's just very evident in this passage that he is calling Jesus the Messiah. Jesus hears that, and he does not rebuke him. He, um, he heals him. And so it's an acceptance of that title. This whole, this whole interaction um, is, is an acceptance of, of what Jesus is about to do. And we'll see as we kind of go reading along, um, it's kind of setting up for this triumphant entry, basically. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, to see, you know, we've got this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. How many times does a gospel actually give the subject of a miracle a name? Very, very rarely, Right. So um, we can kind of conclude that either by the time Mark is writing this, Bartimaeus is known in the church, and so he's, he's listing him because, you know, that's kind of an honor and people know who he is. Um, and also just this is, a, this is a, a witness, a public witness, and we can be so thankful that repeatedly in Scripture um, we have things like this to back up our truth, that we don't just have a blind truth, but there are things like this that are built into uh, the gospel accounts to give it the validity um, of the truth that it is, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, so he, he calls him by name. How did Bartimaeus know who Jesus is or, or to call him son of David, to call him Messiah? Um, and Isaiah 11:4 actually says that the, the coming of the Davidic king it says, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And Psalm 72, 12 says that the ideal Davidic king will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. Um, and so it's, it's very much tradition. The Jewish tradition is going to hold to this, that this Messiah is going to be a rescuer. And he has kind of this, this scriptural reference to fall back on. And so um, although there wasn't social media and there wasn't newspaper writing, we have to know that he knew who Jesus was. Word of Jesus had traveled enough that he is, he is hearing these accounts. Um, you know, over and over, Mark talks about the popularity of Jesus, the crowds, the crowds. We see that a lot, right? So we know that people are knowing who Jesus is. Um, the other thing is that Jesus um, did come from the line of David, and we have the genealogies to prove that. His family um, very, very likely would have known, and that's something to be proud of in the Jewish culture. So you know that as kind of his popularity is rising, that's something, too, that people are taking note. Um, but this is the first time that a human character other than Peter is calling him Messiah. And it's this blind beggar. He's calling him son of David, son of David, um, the name of a king, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, let's keep going. Verse 48. Let's pick back up in 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, he recovered his sight and 
followed him on the way. Um, there's a couple of really important things to note about this section of the passage is, first of all, in this day and time, blind people are completely dependent on others. They have absolutely no way to make money. So this guy, he's kind of set himself up pretty well. Um, you know, people are coming on pilgrimage, right, headed to Jerusalem, and he's on the roadside, and he's there begging. And that really was the only way that they had to care for themselves. So here he is. He's trying to earn money. I would think that this would probably be, in terms of, you know, his livelihood, a pretty lucrative time right before Passover. So there he is, and, and, he's, and he's begging. And he's got um, his cloak, mentions that. That's oftentimes what people would, in, in that position, a blind person would have a cloak that was not only what they would collect money in throughout the day, but it would be their actual, the coat that they had, and it would be their blanket at night in the cold. It was probably um, his only possession, pretty much. Um, and so we see here Jesus calling him, and just that act of he throws his cloak aside, that's what we're told. I mean, he literally just throws it aside and gets up and responds um, to Jesus. And so we just we see this reckless following. It's received with great joy. Jesus calls and he responds. I mean, he is giving everything he has. First of all, he's trusting, right? Because when Jesus calls him and he throws his cloak, um, he doesn't know that Jesus is going to heal him, right? He doesn't know that. And yet he just tosses it aside, loses his prime spot and goes when Jesus calls and Jesus does heal him and Jesus tells him that he can go on his way and it says that he immediately starts following Jesus that was his response to redemption was to begin following Jesus recklessly um, a new life and so it's it's pretty cool seeing um, this passage kind of compared with the passage that we read last week where James and John are arguing over wanting to be the greatest. The two of them are wanting to be the greatest, and they've kind of asked for this position, and then the other disciples find out, and everybody's in a huff. Um, because the question that Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what can I do for you, is the same question that he asks James and John. Just, you know, just right before we see this episode happening and playing out. And we see those two responses and um, Jesus talks to James and John about um, being the greatest and that you must serve. And he's kind of redirecting their mindset. He's rebuking them. He's redirecting their mindset. And then we watch Jesus do just that. Everything that he just said, he does. Um, because it's pretty clear that the disciples would have, they would have kind of known. You know, we've been... On this, you know, this three-year ministry journey, you know, we've seen Jesus do all of these works. He's grown in popularity. People know who he is. He's been avoiding Jerusalem. Now we're going there. Because what happens so many other times when someone is healed? What does Jesus do? Does he say, go tell everybody? No. He tells them, shh, keep this quiet. He usually, um, he usually is kind of holding them back. And now all of a sudden, no, we're, we are going. We are on this journey. This is happening. And so it's, it's pretty likely the disciples, you know, they're expecting something. Okay, here we go. We're, we're marching in. We're marching to the city. You know, whatever it was that they had in their minds, this is happening. Um, and so for, for a procession like that to be interrupted by a blind man, which at that time, you know, is just thought of as major outcast. And then to watch Jesus stop everything and give this man his sight, um, we see him serving. That's just, it's a pretty cool picture when you see those two things mirrored. And I, I just, I pray that we would have eyes to see like that. Um, Jesus heals and restores. And this is also um, kind of this renewal of sight is a sign of coming restoration. That's one thing that we can say. And um, Isaiah um, 35, 5 through 6 says, And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Um, and so we see this, the fulfillment even of that prophecy. And, and this is the last healing miracle in Mark's gospel. And it, I think it's just so fitting, um, just the conclusion of that, of um, of Jesus fulfilling these things. This is a pretty cool picture. Okay, Madison, go ahead and read verses 11 um, all the way down. 11, 1 through 11. 
and Cain said, Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Unite it, untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that had been cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay. We're going to break this down um, into smaller sections again. So let me just reread the first few verses. We'll go, we'll go through verse 6. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Okay, anybody else in here a detail person? If you're a detail person, raise your hand. If you're not a detail person, you're sitting here reading this like, Mark, why do I care? It's something that has never been written on. Jesus tells them this exact thing to say. Then it happens. Then they say the exact thing that Jesus says to say, right? And we see all of this playing out. And I have to tell you, like, part of how I prep is I'll read the text over and over and over. And the first few times I was just going, Mark, why? why are you telling me this? Really, what is the significance of this? And as I started studying it, it actually turns out to be pretty stinking cool. Um, and we should always ask that question, right? So when, when that happens to you and you're reading and you're thinking, okay, what is the point of this? That should be, take note of that because there's a reason. There is a reason that Mark is telling us these things. And so just remember that as you go about your time and learning God's word that um, there's always a reason. So we're going to find out what that is. And it's pretty cool. First of all, we see um, that Jesus is sovereign with supernatural foreknowledge, right? He tells them, you're going to go here this is going to happen. They find it exactly as Jesus said. You know, people are going to question you. I mean, he told them to go steal a horse, right? I mean, essentially, they're going to give it back, so it's borrowed. But I mean, that's what he tells them, go, you know, and people are going to question you. And you just tell them, give it because I said. So that's what they do. And amazingly, just as Jesus said, right, the people let them go and they bring it back. Um, And then that we see um, Jesus sitting on this, this cult, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up here. So that happens. Um, why all the details? Why all the details? Does anybody know? There may be a few people who know. It's actually a lot of things, but the biggest would be fulfillment of prophecy. So if you go to Zechariah 9.9, let's read that really quick. Which, it's important to note, I mean, Zechariah, Old Testament, right? So this would have been written about 450, somewhere in there, long time um, before Jesus, and this is the prophecy that he's fulfilling. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here he is fulfilling this prophecy. That's, That's really the biggest thing to note is Jesus is, he is coming as king. I mean, there's, there is no, this is the first time that he is implying publicly, I am king. Um, and it's important to note, you know, that in, in this sort of time, that's oftentimes how a king was established. They would set a king on a horse and he would ride through the city gates. That's what would be happening there. Um, and it would usually be one that is unridden. 
And a, another really cool thing to note about this is that, um, you know, Mark does tell us, you know, that it's one that has never been ridden. In the Old Testament, animals that were never yoked and were not ridden were what were used for sacrifice, which is just a pretty cool thing, as we know that that's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to be the ultimate sacrifice. Um, okay, let's, let's keep going. Seven through, seven through ten. Find my place here. And they brought the quilt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut out from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And so they are absolutely, the crowd is welcoming him. Um, you see all these things happening, and this is just such a rich, a rich passage. Um, I found it interesting that some people are, are trying to argue in this passage that the Jewish people didn't know what they were doing. Um, and, and I'm about to kind of give you the evidence that, no, they actually knew that they were welcoming what they deemed to be a king, the Messiah, the Davidic king. They actually knew all of those things. Um, they were, they were welcoming that. Again, we have to note it's, this is happening during Passover. That's not an accident. Passover is the time where everyone comes and celebrates what? What are they celebrating? Redemption from Egypt. Redemption from slavery. And so they are, they are all coming. They are getting together. It's a huge celebration for the Jewish people. And you have to know, thinking about, you know, during this time, we talked about this last week, if you were here, um, they're under the oppression of who? Rome. Rome. Pretty terribly. So this would also have been a time of remembrance, of remembering this promised Davidic king, that we are going to be saved, that, that righteousness is going to come. So all of those things are going to be in the air. And Jesus is doing this, and he is coming straight through these gates. Um, people did not ride on this pilgrimage. It was They walked. And so we, hear, we see again, Jesus is on this colt. He is coming through. He is... He is basically making that statement, I am coming as king, I am coming in authority. Um, and some people will try to say that the reason that they are kind of disagreeing, that no, they probably didn't know, they're saying that Rome would have done something about it, you know, Jesus would have been arrested. Well, guess what? He was arrested the next day. So it's definitely one of those things that, um, that they did know, that they were accepting, and we're going to talk about kind of, of the reasons behind that. So the first thing is going to be, The son of David title. Okay. We see, um, I mean, Mark is just setting the stage for us of that, of that being set up. Um, we see that, you know, Bartimaeus has basically, he said it publicly. Son of David, you are the Davidic king. He's calling it out. Not once, two times. And again, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus heals him. That, I mean, he's, he is accepting. You, know, you guys know Jesus is not afraid to rebuke when someone is wrong. Right? So this is happening publicly. So, so there's that. There's that piece of this. Um, and then the second thing is we see the cult fit for a king. Unridden, paraded through the city gates. That's huge. Um, the third thing is going to be the fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah, another big thing. Um, and then a few of those texts that I read, you know, initially just with how Bartimaeus would have um, even known who Jesus was. Um, these are things that if you're a good Jew, you know the scriptures and you know the law. Um, and you are very, very much longing for the coming king under the oppression of Rome. You are longing for uh, redemption, and, and the people are ready. They are ready for Rome to be overthrown. They are ready, um, you know, to be living, you know, their kingdom, um, and and for that promised king. Um, and then the fourth thing is palm branches. And Mark doesn't specifically say palm branches, but another one of the gospels does. Palm branches, kind of interesting. Why palm branches? That was actually. A nationalistic emblem. It would be pretty similar to um, 
waving an American flag at a presidential inauguration. So Anthony's over there with the bald eagle, right? I mean, that's basically, that's what's happening. They are welcoming this. There's so much more than meets the eye. I mean, that is their, yes, you know, they're, they're welcoming their king. That is essentially, um, that's what they're doing. And um, the other thing is we have the laying of garments. Which, if you know the Old Testament, um, we can go. It's Second Kings 9, 12, and 13. I'm going to read that really quick. This is Jehu, anointed king over Israel. Um, and we just don't have time to go through a lot of it. But this is essentially, he is, he is coming through, he is being anointed, and this is what happens. And they said, that is not true, tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so we see again, this is just another sign. They are welcoming him as their king. Um, and then kind of the final, the final thing is going to be this phrase, Hosanna. They're shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is, um, the Hebrew word is originally meaning save us now. To me, that's like the biggest thing. Came to be a huge cry of praise, but save us now. Um, and it's repeated in verse 10, in the highest, meaning in heaven or in God's presence. So when you look at all of those things happening quickly, added up, we can very much see that they are celebrating their liberating king. That's what's going on here. They are welcoming Jesus with open arms. They are excited for what is to come. Um, and Jesus is coming and, and saying, rightfully, I am the king coming in all authority, um, which is a pretty cool thing. And then we've got this last verse here, 11.11. It's pretty important. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus essentially does all of this. He comes on this journey. He has his, um, his welcoming into the city. I am here. I am king. And he goes and inspects his domain, his property, the temple. And he's going to return the next day, and he's going to render judgment with authority. This is one of those to-be-continued that you're like, no, it's going to be so good. You don't want to miss next week, I will tell you that. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then Drew's going to come and talk for us just a little bit about um, the king that the Jews were expecting. Okay, um, so Rachel has laid out for us the text and, and some of the key kind of themes leading to this key theme as Jesus as King. Um, here's what I want to do for just a little bit as we kind of get started. Our main goal through our studies here on Thursday night, obviously, is, is to help you guys gain a greater knowledge of God's Word and ultimately, hopefully, a greater love of God's Word. I guess that's not ultimately. To gain a greater love of God's Word so that, here's the ultimately, so that you have a greater love for God Himself. And so uh, we, want, we want to help you understand His Word as well as possible. But kind of a, a secondary aspect of that is we really do want to also teach you how to study the Bible, teach you how to be able to know um, how to do that on your own and to, and to be able to gain a better grasp um, as you spend time kind of reading yourself. And so um, from time to time, we like to kind of pause for a second and point out some of the practices that we're working through. I want to talk to you guys tonight about one that is a, um, a, a really valuable tool in interpreting the scriptures, and it's uh, simply called parallel passages, the use of parallel passages. Um, so parallel passages are, are just this. Two or more texts that are describing the same topic or story. Two or more texts that talk about the same topic or subject or story. Um, so you have examples like 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks 
um, quite a bit about marriage and actually seems to somewhat, um, somewhat talk it down a little bit, like it's not that big a deal and maybe, hey, stay away from that. Um, and then you also have Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about marriage and he actually lifts it up quite a bit. So these are parallel passages both dealing with the same topic and we get a fuller picture of the biblical view of marriage when we look at both of these together rather than just one of them. You have passages like 2 Kings 18 through 19. That describes the story of Sennacherib who is the king of Assyria at that time. He had conquered Israel and he was making his way down and starting to conquer places of Judah. He set up a siege around the city of Jerusalem. That exact same story is recounted in Isaiah 36 and 37. Exact same story. Um, and so this is, a, so this is a parallel passage that's not the same topic. It's the actual story describing those same events with a few different details kind of added in in each. Um, prophets and the kings. Now, in that case, you have two narratives. But a lot of times, the prophecies can be rooted in actions that are described. So Isaiah might be describing something in his prophecy that is described, uh, that is talked about in 1 Chronicles or whatever. Um, and so you have parallel passages in things like that. The Gospels provide a lot of parallel passages um, because they are describing the same events, the, the ministry, the life of Jesus. And so you're going to have a lot of passages between the four Gospels talking about the same uh, stories. Let me tell you kind of how these things help. Parallel passages help in a number of ways. They can, first of all, fill in gaps and add details to a story or a topic, like our story today, which is what we're going to get into. We're going to see how Mark gives us this account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But when we look at the other Gospels, we see more details being filled in that help us understand a little bit more of what's going on. Um, parallel passages bring balance and or tension to the text. So the 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, uh, helps us out a lot because he does, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually recommends, I think it might be better if you just stayed single. Um, and, and then it, it sounds like he almost views that as a lesser thing. When you get married, your devotion is torn between God and spouse. So stay single so you can be completely devoted to God. But then in Ephesians 5, you see him lift marriage up as this beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Something that God designed from the beginning to honor him through it. And so it's through parallel passages that we're able to see Paul's not... This is kind of cool. Parallel, when we look at both of these together, we see this. That marriage is um, far more important than a lot of people make it out to be. It's not just a relationship between two people. It is a picture of Christ and His church. Far more important than many, in, many people in the world make it out to be. And yet, we look at 1 Corinthians 7 to see this. It is not the end-all, be-all of your life. And you're okay without it. And, and it's not what's going to fulfill you and satisfy you. And when we see these two together, it gives us a more full picture of what marriage is. Um, uh, even, even kind of this idea, Isaiah 45, Deuteronomy 4, a number of other passages say this, um, I am the Lord your God and there is no other besides me. There is no other God besides me. I'm it. There's only one. And then we come to John 1 that says this, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And so we go to Isaiah 45 that says there's no other God. And we go to John 1 that says, and there was this guy that was hanging out with God who was also God. <laughs> and, and it's because of parallel passages that we have the concept of the Trinity. Because we see, we see the Bible telling us there's only one, and we see the Bible telling us there's three. And so we push these together, and the tension in that gives us the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, parallel passages help us see a writer's purpose or his highlights, his themes. Okay, so this especially works when you see um, writers describing the same story. Here's a great example. The temptation of Jesus is described in three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call these the synoptics. Synoptic meaning see the same. 
Because those three Gospels describe many of the same events in Jesus' life, and they, there is a lot of overlap between those three. So all of them describe the temptations. Mark just says that it happened. He doesn't get into much detail because Mark likes to keep the action moving. He likes to keep the pace going forward. But what's very interesting when you read this is Matthew tells us that the devil first tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, to feed himself, and then he takes Jesus up to the temple and tells him to throw himself off and angels will catch him as kind of a display of his greatness and his glory. And then, as the climactic scene, he takes him up on top of a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you bow down to me, I'll, I'll give all of these to you. I'll make them all yours, right? And that all makes sense. And that's the way you probably heard it told to you in Sunday school. Luke actually changes the order of those temptations. Luke says, yes, stones into bread was the first temptation, but then the devil takes Jesus up on a high mountain and he offers him all the kingdom of the world, and then he takes him to the temple and tells him to throw himself off, which, which seems a bit anticlimactic. It's the whole give you the kingdoms of the world would be the greatest temptation at the end. So we have to ask this question, why does Luke change the order up? Why does, he, why does he do that? Is he just, I don't think that he's just wrong. I don't think that he's just mistaken. Luke, by the way, probably has Matthew and Mark in front of him when he's writing his gospel. So he knows the order that Matthew put it in, but he chooses to put the temple last. And, and when we look at Luke, we actually see that the temple is a big deal in his gospel. His very first scene in his gospel takes place in the temple. His very last scene in the gospel takes place in the temple. His climactic scene in the temptation takes place at the temple. And over and over again we see the temple come up. There's debate as to why. I think it's because he's showing, as the writer for the outsider, the writer of the Gentiles, I think he's showing that Jesus is the replacement, is the new temple where man meets God. Um, but when we read these two parallels, then we get a clue as to what Luke is pointing at. Oh, Luke decides to tell this story different. He must have a different emphasis that he's trying to get to than the other Gospels. And it's through parallel passages that we see that. There are a lot of opportunities in the Gospels to view parallel passages, especially in those synoptics. So I want to try something tonight, and this could get interesting. We hope, I hope that, it'll, uh, hope that it'll work out for us. Whoops, I just took a picture. Yep. Um, okay, we got that going. Okay, we got that going. There's my... Well, look at all you guys. Uh, okay. Um, there's my picture. All right. So what I have here, actually... What? Ow! What? What? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so what I have here actually is the four the four stories about the triumphal entry. Okay? That are that are all laid next to each other. What I did, I just built four columns in a Word document and then print them out next to each other. Now here's actually the first thing you learn from doing this exercise right here. Okay? First thing you learn, there are four tellings of this story. Now that's obvious and that's simple, but that's significant because there's very few stories that the gospel writers all deem to be important enough that their reader has to know it. This is one that every one of them says, my readers have to know that this took place. All four of them decided to put them in there. So I'll show you kind of my, my little key here that I used for it. So I don't know if you can see the colors real well, but I decided for, uh, I'm starting with Mark. Mark is where I want to study. So Mark is my reference point, and, and, and I'm coloring it kind of based on that. Anything that is green is something that is unique to Mark. That is, no other gospel writer tells us this fact or this information about the story. You will see as we scroll through here that there is very little green. In fact, there's none on this first page because Mark doesn't fill in a lot of extra details for us that the other guys don't. Um, Pink is something that is unique to, to Matthew or Luke or John, something that is only in Matthew or is only in Luke or is only in John and not in any of the other gospel uh, accounts. Blue is something that the texts share with Mark, okay, that is overlapped, that you'll read it in Matthew and then you go over to Mark and he says the exact same thing. 
Um, yellow was supposed to be something that all of them shared in common, but I got a little carried away with the blue and forgot the yellow, so <laughs> there's no yellow in here. It's my bad. Um, so, um, so what we get in this, yeah, I just started kind of going crazy, and so there's a couple times when you actually don't have, you have like purple because it was supposed to be pink and I went to the blue already, too bad, so yeah, my bad. My bad. Um, I got carried away with the blue, there was so much. Um, so anyway, but what you see here is, look, all of blue, all of Mark is in blue, which means everything from this first part of this little story here in the triumphant entry is described in other parts of the gospel. Um, but as we read through the other Gospels, we get added details that help us to understand this story a little bit more. Let me show you um, from Matthew real quick. What we learn from Matthew is this, um, that this wasn't just a cult, that this was the, the cult of a donkey. Um, in fact, Matthew says that actually there's a donkey, like a mom donkey there. I don't know, what's a, is there a term for female donkeys? A mom donkey, I think, is the technical term. There was a mommy donkey, okay, and then her colt, and then her colt was right there. And actually, Matthew tells us that they got both of them and that they both went down the road together with Jesus there. Um, and so Matthew's the one who tells us a donkey. That's significant. Why? Why is that significant? Because Zechariah says that there is a don- that it's a donkey that matters there. So let me read to you what he says. He says that it's fulfilling prophecy. Um, 21 verse 4 through 5, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on, oh no, (laughs) there we go, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here's the other thing actually that Matthew helps us to see, Um, Mark says that there were disciples and that there were many of them. Matthew says that this was a bigger deal than that. Matthew says down in verse 10, you see that in pink? Um, actually down at the bottom there. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So when Jesus comes in, he says the entire city gets worked up over this. Now, we don't take that to mean that literally every person in the city is worked up, but that this is a really huge commotion that is taking place. Let me show you a little bit of what John tells us. John tells us, oh, actually, I want to go back here. John tells us this, that the reason people are so excited is because it's something that just happened a little bit earlier. It's actually in the chapter right before. So the triumphal entry is John 12. Does anybody know what big event took place in John 11? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why are there so many people going out to meet Jesus? This is what it says in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign, which is this. um, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So the crowd was going out because rumor has it that a guy is coming who just raised somebody from the dead. And can you imagine the implications for people who would love to have a Messiah who could, you know, raise up an army and and attack Rome? Like, you'd never lose if you just keep raising your soldiers back to life, right? Every time somebody, somebody, like, there's something big that's going on. And so they start to spread this message, and this brings more and more people out to see. It's also, and Rachel referenced this, it's John. Every other passage says this, that they waved branches. They waved branches. It's John who's careful to point out to us that they were palm branches, trees or branches of palm trees. And that is significant. It is what she said true, that it was a nationalist symbol um, that they used very often. Here's why it was a nationalist symbol. Because 200 years before Jesus, the Jewish empire was being overrun by another Gentile Um, kingdom, the Seleucid dynasty or the Syrian dynasty ran by a very wicked king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was doing everything he could to destroy the Jewish religion. 
more than likely because he figured if he could destroy the religion, then he could destroy the heart and the loyalty of the people to, to their own nation and to their own God and make them more compliant. And so he was traveling around and burning up the Torah, burning up Jewish scriptures wherever he could. He was making it illegal to practice Judaism. He was... Um, oh, man. <laughs> Knew this was going to be a disaster. Um, So distracting. Okay. Um, he was actually building altars to the god Zeus in Jerusalem. And not only that, um, there's stories of him taking pigs, which were unclean animals that Israelites were not allowed to be around, and sacrificing them on the altar in the temple, making it no longer fit to worship Yahweh on. Their connection to God cut off because they can't offer sacrifices on an altar that has pig's blood slaughtered all over it. He did everything he could to destroy this people. There is this story, though, about the Jewish people getting so frustrated by this oppression. There was this one family called the Maccabees that raised themselves up, and they gathered a revolt together and kind of against all odds ended up defeating the Seleucid army. And as they did that, the leader of it at that time was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And Judas traveled into Jerusalem. After he conquered, after he took, he began to make his way into Jerusalem. And when he did that, guess what all the people waved to their new liberator, their new freer? Palm branches. And and you know what Judas Maccabeus did after he marched his way into Jerusalem? First thing he did, cleansed the temple because it's been defiled, and so now it has to be cleansed. Guess what Jesus is going to do as his very next act? Interesting, huh? And so palm branches became such a big deal that they were actually minted on Jewish coins before, of course, the Romans all take over and make their own coins. But when, when they have, so we put George Washington on our coins, we put Abraham Lincoln, they put palm branches. It's that big of a deal to them. It really is important. So here's what Luke tells us real quick, and then I'll move into kind of my brief last point. Luke tells us this, that Jesus, and this is really interesting, refuses to stop them when they do these things. And so we've seen all throughout the book of Mark um, and, and in the Gospels where Jesus tries to keep things a secret. Rachel referenced that He heals people and He's like, don't tell anybody. And He keeps this very secretive. And then we see Him here and He is not into making a secret out of this. The Pharisees sees this and they recognize the issue of this. Like you don't, the last time a Jewish guy marched into Jerusalem with palm branches waving all over the place, it was because he was attacking the Gentile um, kingdom that was ruling over them at the time. And so the Pharisees know, like, Rome might see this. This could be bad. You're causing problems here, Jesus. And by the way, we know you're not the Messiah, so stop fooling these people, put an end to this. And Jesus, rather than saying, um, yes, or rather than saying, tell no one, he says, it says this, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so this is what Jesus says, this is supposed to happen. Uh, like it's, It is right and fitting that I am honored and celebrated in this way, so much so that if they refuse to do it, the stones will. It, it, it demands that it, it, that it takes place. It is, it is essential for this to be happening. And so Jesus embraces what they are doing to him. And yet, and this is very interesting, Luke also tells us something that none of the other gospel writers tell us. And that is what Jesus' demeanor and thought process was in this. This ought to be like his finest hour. This is the moment where he's finally accepting the recognition and the title and all of those things that people have been starting to see little bits of. This is the place where the city is in an uproar over him and everyone is honoring him. And so what is going through Jesus' mind as he comes down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem? This is what Luke tells us. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying um, in this one, he's actually he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem in, in A.D. 70. Um, so he's predicting that in 40 years they're going to be conquered. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not see what was right in front of you, is what Jesus says. Wait, how, how can he say that? They're, they're, they're celebrating him. They're, they're singing to him. They're shouting Hosanna to him. They're waving flags at him. They're putting cloaks on the ground for him. Why is Jesus sad? And why is Jesus saying that they don't get it? Well, because he knows. Because he knows they don't get it. He knows that this same crowd, and this is what is so mind-boggling, the exact, I say the exact same crowd, at least many in the crowd who shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, also shouted five days later, crucify him. And this is really interesting. Why is the question? Why do they yell, crucify him? Why What makes a people switch their minds, change their way of thinking about a person so much that they're celebrating him on Sunday and then calling for his execution on Friday? And see, I used to not get that very well because I didn't get the triumphant entry, because I didn't get Palm Sunday, but now I... Now I understand because of the things that Rachel told to us, because we understand the background of what's happening It was never Jesus that they were celebrating. It was everything they thought that they could get from Jesus that they were celebrating. They weren't celebrating Him as the rightful Messiah. They were celebrating their own concept of the Messiah. They were celebrating the freedom that they thought that Jesus was going to bring to them. They were celebrating the prosperity that they expected Jesus to bring back to their nation, to restore it back to the time of when David was in power. That's actually what they say in Mark 11, verse 10. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And they're celebrating everything that they expect Jesus to be able to give to them. And when it becomes apparent to them that he's not going to do that, i.e. when he's arrested by the Romans, by by the Jewish leaders and put on trial, well, then they're done with him. I have no need of a Messiah that cannot set us free. I have no, mis- have no need for this one. They don't want Jesus. They want His stuff. Don't want Jesus. They want his, the blessings that they expect Him to be able to give to them. They will follow Him singing His praises. They will follow Him all the way down into the city of Jerusalem. But they're not going to follow Him when He walks outside the city and makes His way up to Golgotha. Like that's where they draw the line, at the cross. No, 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 I, I didn't sign up for this. That's, that's not what I'm here for. That's not what I called, or that's what, not what I showed up here for. This is a sad and tragic turn of events. It is a sad issue, but it is not one that is unique to first century Judaism. History is actually full, full of people who have come to Jesus, not for Jesus, but for everything they think that he's going to give them. History is full of kings and popes and preachers who have come to Jesus expecting that it's going to get them power and control over their people. Full of it. History is full of Jewish people or others who have come expecting that he is going to liberate them and set them back up to prominence. It's full of Athletes who cross themselves before they step up to the bat, hoping that it will bring them fame and fortune and success in what they do. It's full of people like that. It's, it's full, of, full of people that we like sit next to in the pews every week at church. Um, full of maybe some of us in here who come to Jesus not for Jesus, but for what we think we'll get from Him. Um, the most common, the most common like form of this that probably you know of is what we call the prosperity gospel, or the health and wealth gospel, which is preached by guys like Joel Osteen, or, or Benny Hinn, 
Um, a little bit of Joyce Meyer saying things like, if you follow Jesus, if you are good and faithful to Jesus, He will bless you with health and wealth. You won't get sick if you're following Jesus right. He'll bless you financially. You'll get rich if you're following Jesus right. And all it is is saying, I don't want Jesus, but, but I want His stuff. And I'll follow Jesus if I get the stuff, if I get the blessings. But it's not just like prosperity gospel stuff. There's actually some fairly like noble things to want that a lot of people want when they come to Jesus. There are a number of people who think that if I follow Jesus, it'll fix my marriage. There are a number of people who think, like, if I follow Jesus, then he'll bless me with a good marriage, with, like, a husband or a wife that I can have someday. There's a number of people who think that if I follow Jesus, that it will help my kids do better, or, or if I follow Jesus, that honestly, it will make... There are a ton of people. I don't even know if they know it, but they're following Jesus as some sort of kind of self-improvement project, personal fulfillment to become a better them because they know that, that when they're in church and when they're hanging around people in the church and they're listening to sermons, that they, they, they act better and they feel better about themselves and they feel less guilty. There are a whole lot of people who follow Jesus as basically a get-out-of-hell-free card. So like if I just kind of say the prayer, if I just kind of show up at church, then, like, then, then I'm good with Him, right? We're good and I don't have to, don't have to worry about where I'm going to go after I die. I'm not actually saying um, that you won't sometimes get those things, that you won't often get those things. I really do believe that following Jesus most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time leads to better marriages. Sometimes it might make your marriage a lot worse when you're trying to follow the conviction that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart and your spouse doesn't want to do that. And it just does this. Um, I really do believe that there is more joy in following Jesus. I really do believe that it will help your parenting. I really do believe that it overall ends up making you a better person. And of course, following Jesus is the way of salvation. And yet, that's just not how it works with Him. That's not the way things happen with Him. There is joy in following Him, but the Bible never separates that joy from hardship. And so that there is not hardship or that we don't face difficulty in these. I've said this before, but here's a great litmus test to know whether you're following Jesus for Jesus or whether you're following Jesus for the stuff you think you're going to get from Him. Because none of us think we're doing that. Okay? A great way to know is like when things go south for you, how angry or frustrated do you get about that? Like when things get hard, when loved ones die, or when that person that you just knew you were going to be with for the rest of your life breaks up with you, when um, finances fall through, like, do you find yourself getting bitter? Do you find yourself getting even a little bit ticked at God, impatient and questioning Him and His goodness? If so, that's a pretty good sign that you thought the deal was He gives you good stuff when you follow Him. He's there for your benefit for those things. And that's just not the way... It works. I love this. This is something Matt Chandler says. We don't follow Jesus because He makes our life better, but because He Himself is better than life. We do not follow Jesus because He makes your life better. He might. He might not. But I guarantee you this. He is better than life. He is better than anything you could have. That's why we follow Him. Because He's worth that. And the call to follow Him for you and for me and for all of us is not just to follow Him celebrating with the crowd, singing with Him on Sunday, whether that's in our pews or walking down the road of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. The call is not to just follow Him celebrating all the way into Jerusalem, but to follow Him all the way out of the city, all the way up to Golgotha, all the way up to the cross. That's the message of Mark. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah will suffer and His disciples follow Him all the way in those things because of who He is. If we really want Jesus for Jesus' sake, it is going to cost us. But I do believe this too. It is worth it. Even in the cost, it is worth it. We follow Him not because He makes life better, but because He is better than life. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you for your goodness in Jesus.
um, here's my prayer is um, our hearts are so deceitful and it is so easy to think that I'm noble and good in my motives to seek after you and follow you but um, but but I'm a lot of times wrong and so my prayer is that you would give us this grace that you would open our eyes to where to those parts in our life where it's not Jesus we want it's it's the the good luck or the blessings or the peace or whatever that comes with following him I'm thankful for those things when they come but but um, I don't want that to be my my connection to you or my motivation for you Lord um, help us to see um, where we want your stuff and not you and give us a, a greater picture of Jesus as the rightful king who deserves our following him who deserves our devotion and worship um, as one who is worth following all the way not just into the city in celebration but out into the cross in sacrifice I ask you that in the name of Jesus Amen, Amen. All right, stick around, guys. We got food. What do we got back there? Chicken nuggets tonight. Oh, I don't know.